and welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, your resident question asker, joined by SIS Vice President of Football and Research and Development, Matt Minicharian. Our producer-editor is Justin Stein. On today's show, we're joined by a friend of mine from my ESPN days, Chris Felica from College Football Game Day, The Daily Wager, and the Stanford, Steve, and the Bear Show. We are the official data provider of college football stats to ESPN. Chris helps with ESPN's draft prep. It's in the era of the host on air during the draft, just about at all times. He's got the football rookie handbook in front of him. You can order it too at actasports.com. Chris, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. Yeah, just good to talk to you for the first time in a while. And yeah, draft coming up very soon. And it's uh, certainly long been a, uh, a passion of mine being a, a uh, miserable, bitter, put through the ringer Jets fan with all the uh, the swings and misses that, that that franchise has had in the last oh, 40 years or so. And they're going to get a chance at a big swing in this draft. Since our last podcast, one of the biggest NFL headlines was the Jets training Sam Darnold to the Panthers. They got back one pick this year, two picks next year, and that clears the way for Gangreen to select Zach Wilson, the quarterback from BYU with the number two overall pick. Matt, we rank Wilson and Justin Fields basically even. We talked about Fields in the previous episode of this podcast. The Jets seem to prefer Wilson. Our scouting report from the Football Rookie Handbook says Wilson fits best in a zone offense that allows him to take deep shots. What would you think if Wilson goes to the Jets? Well, I think that should be what the Jets are trying to do offensively is is kind of fitting into that thing. You look at Mike LaFleur, Matt LaFleur's brother, who's going to be calling the offense there. And it's going to be a lot of those same wide zone principles, exactly what we're talking about when we talk about that sort of a fit with a Wilson. The key for Wilson with me is, uh, number one, this sort of new era of the Jets, I, I would have loved to see Darnold under a, a new regime, so to speak, but it's going to be Wilson under the new regime. And with that, there's the good on the film, which is his athleticism, his ability to make big plays, his ability to, to really detach his arm from the rest of his body in terms of his, the ability to make throws all over the field, regardless of what direction he's running with. The the, the arm talent is Rodgers and Mahomes like what gets me worried is it was a one-year wonder. It was 2020, which was the weirdest college football season that any of us have ever seen. And BYU plays a weird schedule to begin with being an independent. Look back at the 2019 film. This was a different player. This was a guy who did not look anything like what he looked like in 2020. So where I get nervous is kind of is kind of that one-hit wonder, Millie Vanilli. Jets fans, you know, I don't think they'll be booing at the draft this year, but there's there's reasons to that it could go one way or the other. Chris, I'm sorry about your Jet fandom. You and I stood inches apart when John Hall missed that big kick, oh. as you as you well oh. know. Either bring the pessimism here or just give us your thoughts. To, to echo on what you're saying about the the one-year wonder type deal, that is a lot of it for me. I tried to say this in a lot of sports, but especially in college football last year with the way the COVID situation came down with these kind of made-up schedules, teams missing. Like I don't try to take anything what happened last year overreact to it one way or another. But but I do think you have to look and have some level of hesitation about a guy who in 2019 had a quarterback rating of 57 through 11 touchdowns and nine picks. Then a year later, in a year where uh, yeah, we're facing a COVID uh, schedule of a mishmash type of teams where their, their schedule rated, I think, 70th, he jumped to 33 touchdowns, three picks, and a QBR of 89. I got like a 32 point leap in one year for QBR. Like, is it real or, or is it just a complete outlier? And then the other thing, which I think when you look at Wilson's production from, from the, uh, the college standpoint is BYU is an interesting program because of 
the propensity to have older players in the program because of the their missions that they go on to fulfill the the, the, the Mormon, Mormon mission. Like he played with a, a tackle tackles last year who were 24 and 25 years old. His center was 24. Uh, the youngest lineman on that line was 22. And against the teams that they were playing, I think the maturity and the, and the age difference and the discrepancy there, the, 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 more, the bigger development of bodies, I think that went a long way in BYU being able to really control the line of scrimmage and, and give Wilson a ton of time to really do whatever, whatever he wanted. So I have a lot of trepidation. I, I think the, the risk factor is very, very, very high. For, uh, for, for for Zach Wilson here as a Jets fan, I hope that he pans out to be good. But I would have a, a, a very high level of hesitation. Like, look, if I were running the Jets, the first thing I would have tried to have done was just trade back, because obviously there are people who love Wilson, and they will be willing to give up a ton of picks for for Zach Wilson. And then if you're going to keep the pick, however, I think Penay Sewell should have been the pick, uh, because if you put Penay Sewell and Becton on opposite hmm. side of tackles, you're, you're setting yourself up for seven, eight, nine, ten years potentially of being set on the offensive line. Like you can have the best. Look, look at look what happened in the Super Bowl this year. You can have the greatest quarterback in the world, in Patrick Mahomes. If you can't block, it doesn't do any good. So I, I, I would have taken a different approach from the if I were Joe Joe Douglas and the Jets this year. But it appears that Zach Wilson is going to be a Jet and Jets fans and the Jets themselves just to hope have to hope for the best. I like the way that you think about it. I mean, if you could have the best of both worlds, trade down and get a Panay Sewell, mm-hmm. which might have been realistic given you yeah. saw the Dolphins move down, um, get from three to six. So there's no reason to think you couldn't have gone from two to six, had something similar, had good quarterback options available to, to you there. Hey, they fell in love with their guy, but it's not just QBR. The numbers that we do at SIS, they match. When you look at it, expected points added was actually negative in 2019. For Zach Wilson, it was below average in terms of an offense, passing offense. And then we do something called total points rating. And it went from a, a 66 total points rating in 2019. You can think of that like a Madden rating in terms of the, the grade and a 99 in 2020. And I think you're spot on when you talk about the, the different makeup of BYU compared to their competition this year. I don't think you can, as a scout, you need to take that context into account. And so I think you're spot on. Chris, let me, let me move the journey along here. Jets also pick at pick 23, the pick they got from Seattle and Jamal Adams trade. And they have the second pick in the second round, 34 overall. Where are the good fits and what are the things that they should be doing and thinking about in those spots? Well, I, I think one player who probably fits with what the Jets should be doing offensively to help. Well, obviously, if they take Zach Wilson to, you're, you're going to need to address the offensive line in some spot. The kid from Notre Dame, obviously, I think is someone who could be around later I in the first be. round. Of, I should, uh, yes, thank you. The top of the second round as well. And obvi- this is obviously an offense which has stunk and stunk for a while. Uh, they're in desperate need of game breakers. Obviously, it's a deep wide receiver draft, but I do think people have their opinions on when do you take a running back in the first round? Do you take one or not? But but I think you could probably hang around and maybe get someone like Travis Etienne at the top of the second round who does so well catching the ball out of the backfield. And I, and I think that's he does well in the, in the return game as well. So he's someone who is a big play threat who I think if you can get him the ball in space, that really might help the Jets who are so devoid uh, of game breakers. I think you just got to sit around and, and play best player available. The Jets, we have them with one position where they're above average, their interior defensive line. Besides that, we have all of their position groups <laughs> as having been below average last Sounds year. Sounds about right. So, 
So, you know, get players wherever you can. If you can wait to take a running back, if you can wait to take a wide receiver, as enticing as some of those guys are, there are going to be guys on day three available at those positions. And day three is going to get real thin, real fast this year because of the amount of players going back to school next year and sort of some of the depth that goes into the class. So I think you you can't, beggars can't be choosers. You got to pick good players. And building up front is always a good place to start. And, and I think they have three third round picks as well. So that, that you're, you're that, that is a good position. It's a good it's a good spot to have. What I, that adds up to what six? I think six picks in the first few days is a uh, pretty good roster building exercise. Oh yeah, absolutely. And on the subject of quarterbacks, going back to talking about quarterbacks, last episode we talked about Mac Jones versus Justin Field at number three to the 49ers. Looks like Jones is going to go there. There's even the possibility that Fields could go to the Falcons at four, from what I was reading, which would be interesting. I don't want to necessarily rehash that, but we know quarterbacks are going to go at least in the top three spots. We know there are five really good quarterbacks in the draft. Is there a quarterback, Felix, beyond these top five that you like? Yes, I, I would be very interested in taking a flyer on Davis Mills in the second or third round. He's someone who is a highly uh, sought-after guy in college and in David Shaw's offensive scheme. He never really got a chance to shine because Stanford was littered with injuries the last couple of years, and Mills himself was hurt. But he, but he kind of projects, I think, as someone who you can probably get. Obviously, people are going to take a chance on a quarterback higher than they they probably should. But I, I would think Mills would definitely go in the second round for sure, and, and most certainly no later in the third round. But but I, I like Mills as a potential project-type quarterback. If you're, if you're a team, bring up the Falcons, for example. Say you want to use the fourth pick. You know Matt Ryan's your quarterback, but this year, next year probably, if you don't want to take Trey Lance or uh, Justin Fields and, and you want to address that pick and give Matt Ryan and whoever the quarterback of the future is going to be, you want to give them Kyle Pitts or Jamar Chase, then maybe Mills is someone that you might uh, take a chance on for uh, for Atlanta at the top of that second round, knowing that uh, he's going to be have to, have to sit the year anyway, and he can learn and absorb under uh, under Matt Ryan. Yeah, I, you know, round two is is probably a little rich for me for for Mills, but I think you're spot on. Big drop off after the first five quarterbacks, and he's he's as good as anybody else. He ranks seventh in our book, and I think what what you get at there is the word project that you use a lot. You describe a guy with all kinds of natural ability. He's only started I think eleven games in his college career, so you know there's just not a lot of, of tape. Um, Sounds like um, Mitch Trubisky. <laughs> yeah, right. But as opposed to overdrafting him at number two overall, right. uh, this guy this guy probably should be a day two pick. And if he can get it together, if he can learn kind of a little bit more eye discipline, a little bit maturing just in, in a system where he gets in with good coaching. I mean, I, I bet on him all day if he gets into the right system with, with a Sean Payton or Andy Reid. Quarterbacks could be top four, could be all quarterbacks, five and uh, pretty quickly. Who's the first non-quarterback off the board? We were thinking Sewell at one point, but who's it going to be? Where does he go? That, that's, that's interesting because I think you, you hear the, the the rumblings of, oh, Joe Burrow wanting his guy, Jamar Chase in Cincinnati, but I don't know how Cincinnati passes on Sewell. I mean, their offensive line was absolutely horrible last year. If they don't address that offensive line, it doesn't matter who the Bengals have on the outside. Joe Burrow is not going to be able to develop into the quarterback that they all expect and want him to be. So I think it's a no-brainer the Bengals uh, take Sewell. And, and I would think Joe Burrow would be very happy with that because that, that offensive line uh, clearly is looking to still having trouble replacing what Whitworth, who's been gone a couple of years and, and, and missing on some other draft picks as well. But uh, I, I would think that Sewell has to be the pick. You, you take him and you give Burrow his, uh, his left tackle for years to come. 
I'm with you, Chris. There's a lot of noise that wide receiver value is more than offensive line value. And I, I think that that analysts that say that are missing something in terms of what's going on and really connecting what they see with what's going on in the numbers. I think that the, the value of a player like that, and then when you talk about the replacement level, there are receivers. You can find receivers. We talk about the depth of the receiver class in this draft, in last year's draft, it's starting to feel like in every year's draft. Um, and that's because receivers exist. There are guys that are six foot, six foot two, 200 pounds. You can find guys that can run. You can't find Panay Sewell's everywhere. So the, the scarcity and, and you have to go and move on those guys early if you're going to get them. So I don't know why anybody would, you know, Joe Burrow's hired to throw passes. He's not thrown to make hired to make draft decisions for them. Cincinnati's in big trouble if, you know, he wants his buddies in there and that's how they're making decisions. But I, I think more realistically, it comes down to sort of these, one of these positional value arguments. And I always, end up on the side of uh, wanting to build up front first, as special as I think some of the past catchers in the draft are. You're looking potentially a big game well to get uh, a guy like Tutu Atwell, De'Ami Brown in the second round. Like how much of a of a drop off is that really from a from a Jamar Chaser or, or, or a Jalen Waddle? I mean, yeah, those guys are electric players and, and electrifying players and great players, but is it that much of a I, I, I agree. I think this drop off from Sewell to whomever that second tackle would be is much, much greater. I want to stick with the idea of positional value because this was something that Matt brought up when we were prepping for the show. Chris, where do you stand in the idea of pass coverage versus pass rush? Is an elite pass rusher or an elite corner more important? And how does that impact the way that you see this draft? I think an elite pass rusher would always be my preference because I, I think pressuring the quarterback, making the pocket messy, taking a quarterback out of his comfort level, I think that create, that that helps your secondary. You can have a... Not only maybe necessarily super below average, you could have an average cornerback whose play is amplified by the fact that you've got a dynamic pass rush who's not allowing a quarterback to to, to have time, and it's it's lessening that 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 time that defensive backs need to cover that wide receiver. So I'm in favor always of taking a defensive lineman, a pass rusher, uh, over a cornerback. I, that being said, this is not a like I, I was going to ask you ask you guys this question: like, who do you think is like is the is the first defensive player off the board. Because, I mean, I, I've seen people say maybe Michael Parsons. I've seen maybe people say Patrick Sertan. I've seen people maybe say J.C. Horn. But, like, in terms of pass rushers, this is certainly not an elite one. Like, would you maybe say Quiddy Pay might be the best one? Yeah, I mean, the way we look at it, the three names you mentioned, I think, are by far the most likely. And I think that the corners are better. I would take Sertan as the first defensive player off the board. Um, and I think that Horn is right there, kind of in that conversation with him. We're a little bit lower on Micah Parsons. I think if you're drafting him, you're actually not drafting, you know, a, a traditional kind of off-ball linebacker. You're drafting somebody that you're going to plan and dropping down as a pass rusher on third down. So maybe Micah Parsons is the best pass rusher in the draft. I, I probably don't agree with that. And so despite I, my agreement with you that in terms of positional value, I'd rather have a pass rusher over a corner. I always say like, well, if it's Deion Sanders, I'd rather have Deion Sanders. And if it's Lawrence <laughs> Taylor, I'd rather have him, right? Like, um, but but it, but in terms of, of how the thing plays out, I think that there's a lot of more value at the top of the draft on the offensive side of the ball. And I would put the corners in terms of their talent ahead of those other guys, even though corner performance is, is kind of harder to predict from year to year or from college to pro than pass rushing is. And, and, and I think that's the part of the, like it's kind of like a chicken and egg uh, kind of mm -hmm. comparison because while we both favor defensive linemen, you don't necessarily, it's like the fantasy draft kind of like thing. You don't want to like be the guy who like 
all because there's a run on something. You you take something because you need it. Like all because you think the defensive line might be the higher priority. If the defensive linemen aren't as good as the corners, and then you're probably reaching a little bit. And you probably again, it, there's nothing wrong with going into a, a draft with your board just simply going best available player. That's that's a good way to look at it. We mentioned Micah Parsons, and uh, I, I just wanted to get your opinion on and what your numbers might say about another uh, Penn State player, Jason Owey. Because I remember a couple of years ago uh, when myself and Kirk Herbstreet do our like preseason like Herbie awards and like our, our guys like to look out for, we were hearing glowing reviews uh, a couple of years ago prior to the 19 season about uh, Jason Elway. And like it never seen, you never seem to see what people were talking about on the practice field really develop onto the field. So uh, is there something that your numbers might show where, where as to how high you think a team might want to take a chance on him? You know, that's exactly when you talk about from an evaluation point of view, what you said is exactly what we see. The ridiculous, just raw physical specimen. He's got all the the measurables that you look for from the position and, and some kind of freakiness to him. We do have a starting level grade on him. He's our seventh ranked edge, but still with, with a 6.7, a starting level grade. And the question is, can he ever put it together? Because when we look, th- when we look into his numbers, zero sacks in 2020, uh, just seven sacks in his career, not a whole lot of production. But when you look at pressures, you actually do see a little bit more. We had him with 24 pressures last year. So that's a real aberration when you have a guy with 24 pressures and zero sacks. Pressures are what's actually going to be more predictive of his production than the sack stuff is to begin with. So in terms of in terms of uh, the potential for things to kind of even out and maybe actually get some more of those plays on the ball that are creating for the offense, I think that there's a good chance that he can improve in that area. But it, it's it's a little bit of a can he put it together from a football intelligence? Can he put it together from a pass rush repertoire standpoint? Because the physical ability is already there. But I'm, I'm with you. It has been a bit kind of hot and cold with him. The 2021 SIS Football Rookie Handbook is coming soon, featuring scouting reports on more than 250 players entering the NFL in 2021. The handbook is a must-read for football fans. The book is written as if you, the reader, are one of the team's decision makers. We capture every strength and weakness both through scouting and statistical analysis, and we've got the most detailed injury information in the scouting industry. The handbook also features essays on important football topics and provides an in-depth take from the perspective of every position on the field. New this year, it will be available on Kindle. To order the Football Rookie Handbook, go to www.actosports.com or wherever books are sold. Chris, also someone, and I know this from having sat within a few feet of him for several years, Chris likes to survey public opinion on a topic. And when he feels that it's too hot, he zigs in the other direction. So what's an example of that in this draft? Who are the guys that you like or don't like for that reason? I don't see it with Mac Jones. Like If you would have told me a year ago that Mac Jones was going to be drafted higher than, than Tua Tonga Valoa, I, I, I don't know what kind of odds I, I would have given you on that. It's just this is a conversation that we had last year as well about Tua and how high he should go. And kind of like me saying, like, I think these quarterbacks, especially at Alabama, whether it's Tua or, or Mac Jones, they're a byproduct of their wide receivers. When you got Jerry Judy and Devontae Smith and, and Henry Ruggs third and Jalen Waddell, you, you, Julio Jones, Cal, Calvin Ridley, like 
they're running free. Like you could have a an average quarterback back there making plays and giving these guys gaudy numbers. So look, I hope Mac Jones, I hope all these guys go on and have a great career, but I, I cannot see not only Mac Jones going third, but why San Francisco would give up so much to move up to three to get this guy. I mean, if you took if you took these five quarterbacks, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, and uh, who did I leave out? Uh, Zach Wilson. If you just put them all in a line next to each other and you start like evaluating their athletic traits and comparing kind of like their their combine style metrics, it is not going to be a pretty comparison for Mac Jones. Compare the arm strength, uh, the mobility, just across the board in the traits. He's he's mediocre when you compare him to all these other guys. Um, but the production has been outrageous. I mean, it was it was what it was in this past year. And I think you're right when you mentioned that it has a large part to do with with who those receivers are. I, I, I generally with you in that I think he's probably – so this is where I go. Maybe Shanahan's been screwing with us this whole time. And maybe this wasn't true because when, when the Niners first made the trade, I said they're going for Justin Fields. It's such a perfect fit. Man, they're a scary team with him in their system. And I still think that's what makes the most sense from a football perspective. But every bit of intel that we get seems to be Mac Jones, Mac Jones, Mac Jones. So I think everybody's kind of accepted that as as what's going to happen. But I, I keep coming back to like, is is he messing with us? Because why would you trade up if you were sitting? Nobody until he did that. Nobody thought Mac Jones was the number three pick. So why would you even create that situation? It's just. I'm starting to go back in the other direction on it now. And I do think it's very interesting how once that happened, then Mac Jones stock continued to rise and rise and rise. Like once we think that Kyle Shanahan likes him, then we're going to bump him up our draft boards and all of our mock drafts are going to move him up the board. I think it's, I mean, what you're smelling, I'm smelling it too from over here on the other side of the zoom. And like you wouldn't necessarily trade up. I mean, you can't trade what you traded to move up to three to take cock pits, right? I mean, while it would be pretty, pretty un, 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 undefendable. Be <laughs> it would be fun to watch George Kittle and Kyle Pitts in the same field, but uh, like you can't trade that type of capital to move up to three to take a tight end, right? It's got to be a quarterback. It's got to be a quarterback. I just can't believe it would be the one with, with kind of the mediocre physical traits, even though I've been in a room with Kyle Shanahan where he told me his, his love of Kirk Cousins and how he just wants a mediocre quarterback. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> This is this is like Matt's favorite topic. This draft has been that that number three pick scenario. What the, what the heck? What the heck's going to happen with it? All right. So along those lines, being in the room, are there any players where the people you talk to, Chris, give a very different impression from what you hear in mock drafts and common discourse? Oh, in terms of where he's drafted, like like a running back I mentioned before, like Najee Harris is a guy who is a great kid and a great teammate. And he's just not going to go as high because of, of the running back position and the and just how people just don't want to place a high first round first round value on on a guy like that. But he's going to go somewhere, and I think he's going to have a dynamic career. I, I think he is going to be a really really good solid contributor for for a long long time. And, and I've seen some varying opinions as well on um on like Gregory Rousseau from Miami, I, like. Like, I, I think at times like his frame might have allowed him to get him pushed back. I mean, he's not like the best athlete uh, in there. He just basically, because he's six seven or whatever, was able to just uh, kind of dominate a lot of teams. So I, I think he's someone who might be uh, like higher on a lot of teams and, and lower on a lot. I, I think he's someone that might 
that, that might be someone who teams might have a couple of question marks as opposed to just like people in Jaws, six, seven, 15 sacks a couple of years ago. Then, then dang it. He's a guy who didn't play last year. So uh, he, he took an entire year off. So we'll, we'll see how that affects him. You start off with Harris, and I'm with you there. It's just the positional value thing. He checks all the boxes across the board. And if there's one thing I thought earlier in his career, it's that he maybe was kind of mediocre athletically. And then all he did was start hurtling guys, you know, in the middle of plays and and showing really that he is an exceptional athlete. So I'm with you. I don't think he's quite Josh Jacobs, but I think he's he's right there in terms of the way he'll come in and be able to produce. Greg Rousseau, I think, is a great one because he's somebody that's a little bit buried in some of our rankings lists, too. And you see him with a lot of first round buzz and you get it. He's like six, seven, 15 sacks in the one season that he played. But I remember when Bryce Rossler, a primary scout who was doing the Greg Rousseau evaluation, was watching him. And he just said, you know, I know he's got a lot of sacks, but these are these are schemed up. These aren't these aren't mm-hmm. him doing things that are that are really like he's blowing it up. And he's this guy with all the measurables and all this production. And therefore, he's going to be great. This guy's still a project. And eventually he came out and he put a good grade on Rousseau, probably something that would project more towards the end of the first round or the second round as a solid starter, but not, a, not an elite, you know, immediate pro bowl level player. But he, he called me and he said, I'm having a lot of trouble with this one. I ended up throwing a couple games of Rousseau on myself at the time and, and trying to get a better picture of what Bryce was seeing. And, and I saw it the exact same way that he does. And I think I, what you said about different teams, seeing this player different ways, it'll come down to how much you're really listening to the scouts that are going into the school and see what the what the how the kid has developed in the program versus the scouts that are coming in uh maybe later in the process maybe it's it's the coaches and the people that say I want that that piece of clay because I can mold him into a special player and I think that's where you see the more of the love for the Rousseau so he's somebody interesting to keep an eye on not just where he goes but also if he can develop into kind of the sum of his of his parts Chris, you're a graduate of the U. Miami has three edge prospects that are all interesting for different reasons. We're just talking about Rousseau now. What about Phillips and Roach? I like Phillips. Phillips is a great story, and he is someone that uh, was a one of the higher sought-after recruits uh, in the country, and he had some injury problems and some other things go on. And for him to, to transfer and have the impact that he did, like, like you watch him on tape, and, and I, got a, I get a much different impression than that I did of watching Rousseau like Phillips like, like there, there were games whether it was Louisville whether it was Florida State like he was unblockable uh, of the three I like Phillips the most and, and I think he probably is the safest of the three to go on and have a a, a good career uh, whereas maybe Rousseau has that higher end of like the like if like his if his body meets the the motor and he finally uh, learns learns some different things like maybe Rousseau has the higher end it, it's amazing that they haven't had a uh, a defend like a front seven player taken in, in the first round since John Beeson which is pretty like Vince Wolfert was the last lineman that they had wow. taken in the first round which is a long long time and that probably goes a long way in, in showing why the uh, the U has been down yeah, it's been a different program since since the years before that, for sure. Uh, we agree with you, by the way. We have Phillips as as the top-ranked edge, actually, in the entire class, mostly because of that ability that you see with, with kind of him being a higher-floor guy. 
I don't see him as a double-digit sack player from season to season, but I see him coming out being a strong side defensive end, playing over the tight end, being able to dominate the tight end on first and second down, and and being a real plus pass rusher. A guy with a similar makeup, you know, he started his career at UCLA, and a player that uh, when I was with the Saints, we scouted coming out of Cal, another West Coast guy was Cam Jordan. He kind of has a similar profile in terms of you you feel good about what you're going to be getting in the run game and and what he can do kind of as a strong side player. And then he'll produce some as a pass rusher, but you shouldn't be expecting this freak guy that's going to be doing the the 20 sack a year thing. Uh, That's just not who he is. When you go through your evaluations, players and teams, and one of the teams of players, do you have any type of historical database where you kind of do like a physical type comparison? Because you hear people kind of voicing a little bit of concern about Devontae Smith and how slight he is. And you hear Tavon Austin being that height and weight. We know it didn't work out for for him. Like you don't want to compare the two with the production on the field, but like you see that body type, is that does that raise a red flag? Like, you know, he's kind of slight. Is he an injury concern? Is there a real spot for him and as a slot receiver in the NFL? Yeah, so more of the research that we've done into that question is less about the the weight of the player, you know, literally in terms of pounds. And more what we look at is in terms of the usage. So is this a player who's going to be able to hold up against press coverage in the NFL is a real question because you're not going to see a lot of press coverage in college football because there aren't a lot of corners that are good enough to do it. And that's really what we're talking about here when we talk about the concern uh, of a slight player like this. So being able to get off press coverage, I think it will be the biggest question for him early in his career. The nice thing is you see a guy that that's that's polished in his ability to get off the line. When teams have tried to press him, it hasn't been something that's been a successful way to go against him. Um, he's got that, that ability to release with quickness um, and not just with strength. What we actually like about him is, and, and the reason why I'm less concerned about him is I think he can play on the outside. I think he can play on the inside. I think he's not Tavon Austin because Tavon could never play on the outside um, with his skill set. And I think that's the difference is is actually more about the playing style rather than just the the physical stature. Exactly. Chris, you've brought up a couple of day two names already. Matt's got one that he wanted to bring up for this uh, episode. Trey Sermon is a name that college football fans know from his Mm -hmm. time at both Oklahoma and Ohio State. Does it surprise you that he's not getting more draft buzz? No, because I, I think he was some, I mean, I think coming off of that injury in the, in the national title game, I think that that's someone that with a little bit of injury concern, I, I think that might knock him down. And if you look at his season, now I don't know if it was just because of the way the Big Ten started the year. And he didn't do a whole lot early in the year. And then he just went on a run late in the year. And I know some people equated it to having fresh legs uh, as, as opposed to some of these other teams that were playing uh, 10 or 11 games a year. But, but I, I, th- I think Sermon is a, uh, is a solid back that, that can certainly contribute uh, as well. I mean, look, look he, he's the type of back that you'd probably rather take a chance on Trey Sermon in the second or third round than you would taking a, 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 a low first round pick on, on a running back just because of the, the way the, way the chart plays out. But, but I, I like Trey Sermon as a player. A couple of interesting points. You mentioned the injuries with him there. Our injury expert, John Barros, actually cleared Sermon based on the information that we have on his injury history. So it'll be interesting to see if teams are failing him on the board once they're in, you know, they're able to poke and prod, at least to an extent this year, not quite to the usual extent at the at the combine. So it'll be interesting to see if, if that impacts where he comes off the board. I think with him, what you see is a guy that can be a strong first and second down player, uh, a good ball carrier. You look at the total points rating per rush, 97, 99, and 90. 
98 each of the last three years. It, it's the per route run stuff where it starts to get worrying. He was below average as a pass catcher each of the last three years. And, you know, that's within the context of the Oklahoma offense, the Ohio State offense. So I think that's where he's kind of – the upside is limited, and, and that's why uh, there's not much value that, that I think pushes him above the, the mid part of the draft at best. And you talk about another day two guy who – is someone we talk about the depth of the wide receiver class, like a guy like Rondell Moore, who can be utilized in so many different ways um, in, in the passing game, maybe getting the, him the ball in, in like jet sweeps, return game. Like, like Rondell Moore is another a dynamic player who I think would be a very good day two pick. Yeah, playmaker is the word. And you talk about Tavon Austin. He's a little bit more of a Tavon Austin type to me. I think he's that that kind of gadget playmaker, line him up in a lot of weird spots. But I don't know that I would trust him to be somebody that that I'd want lining up on the outside as, as an outside receiver. I think he's pretty much limited to that slot gadget role. All right, last question as we wrap things up here. Chris, drawing upon your expertise in the gambling space. Are there team player combos for this draft that you feel particularly good about? Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen those props yet for, for, for players. Like the, the one prop that I've seen out there, I was like, like over, over under four and a half wide receivers taken in the first round. Like I don't see any way, uh, just, just the way the league is going right now, that there are any fewer than five. So that, of all the props out there in terms of like player selection, I, I think that over four and a half wide receivers. And who knows by the time this podcast airs, that number may have moved, moved to five, but uh, I, I of everything that I have seen. That is the, uh, that's the best prop that I like so far. Yeah. seems like a strong case there, especially if you could count Kyle Pitts as a wide receiver, that would make that one real easy. All right. And this wraps up the off the charts football podcast. We'll have one more show before the draft. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you. Anytime. You can find Chris on Twitter at Chris Falika and on the Daily Wager, the Stanford Stephen the Bear podcast, and College Football Game Day. And you can purchase the Football Rookie Handbook at actasports.com and Amazon. For Matt, Chris, and Justin, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for tuning in to the Off the Charts Football Podcast.